0: First Samuel chapter 31, we begin in verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down, slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, Saul's sons, And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. Then said Saul unto his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. So Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men that same day together. And when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley, and they that were on the other side Jordan, saw that the men of Israel fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, They forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. And then if you look down into chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, we'll read a section of this beginning in verse 17. News of this defeat on Mount Gilboa has by this time reached David. David has learned not only of the defeat of the Israelite armies, but of the death of Saul and of his sons, including Jonathan, who was very near and dear to David. And what we have beginning in verse 17 now is David's lamentation, where we read, And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son, Also, we bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty." Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain, in thy high places Amen we'll end our reading in verse 25 we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake if I could call your attention in particular to 2 Samuel chapter 1 look with me at verse 18 if you would well let me read verses 17 and 18 to get an idea of the flow of it here And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. Also he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. It was a sad circumstance that led David to ascend to the throne of Israel. Of course, he had been told in advance that he would ascend to the throne. But what a sad circumstance that led to that actually taking place. The Israelites were defeated in battle by the Philistines. Cities were vacated by the Israelites and occupied by the Philistines. Saul was slain in battle. Worse yet, Jonathan, Saul's son, And David's close friend was also slain. And so we read David's lamentation for Saul and Jonathan. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul, over Jonathan, his son. You'll notice, however, that before the actual words of this lamentation are given to us, the author of 1 Samuel first makes a statement about something else David did following the defeat of Israel. It's a parenthetical statement found in verse 18, and it contains what you might call the first executive order given by David. Notice what it says. Also, or in other words, in addition to lamenting over Saul and Jonathan... Also, he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. You'll notice in the text that in the phrase, the use of the bow, the words use of the are in italics and have been therefore provided by the translators of the authorized version, there's another view of the text that supplies different words in italics. And the phrase reads, Song of the bow. The idea behind that interpretation is that David's lamentation here was a song, and he gave orders for the song to be taught to the children of Judah. All things considered, I think the more feasible interpretation of the words of the text is that the Philistines had a very definite military advantage at the battle of Mount Gilboa through their superior skill in the use of the bow. Notice the words back in First Samuel chapter 31 and verse 3, and the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. So it was those Philistine archers that dealt the first blow to Saul. There's something really tragically ironic about Saul being hit by the archers of the Philistines. For Saul, you may remember, was of the tribe of Benjamin. And the Benjamites were famous among the Israelites for their skill in the use of the sling and the bow. So we read with reference to the Benjamites in 1 Chronicles 12 and verse 2. They were armed with bows and could use both the right hand and the left in hurling stones and shooting arrows out of a bow, even of Saul's brethren, of Benjamin. Oh, they had a great deal of dexterity, evidently. They could sling stones with their right hand, their left hand. They could shoot arrows with their right hand, with their left hand. They were highly skilled in the use of the bow. How ironic then that Saul would fall by the archers of the Philistines. Well, We might well ask the question this afternoon, what does this directive issued by David to teach the tribe of Judah, the use of the bow, what does that directive mean to us living thousands of years later in a completely different age and culture? Outside of being an interesting historical fact, is there really anything in David's directive that would be useful to us today? I would suggest to you that there's much in this directive that's useful to us today, especially when you consider that our warfare is spiritual in nature. So Paul writes, Second Corinthians 10 and verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Oh, we have mighty weapons at our disposal, and we need to be skilled in their use. These are days of great and intense spiritual warfare, and like the children of Israel at Mount Gilboa, we know only too well that there are setbacks and defeats in our spiritual warfare. We may suffer them on a personal level, and I think it would be true to say that the Church of Jesus Christ suffers defeat on a wide-scale level. I don't think I need to convince any of you that the days in which we live now are not exactly triumphant days for the cause of Christ. The forces of the world and the spiritual forces of the devil are pressing hard against the church of Christ The forces of sin seem relentless, and the temptation to be discouraged is great. Like the children of Israel on Mount Gilboa, we might be viewed as being in retreat. Well, with these conditions in mind then this afternoon, I'd like to take a closer look and a spiritual look at David's directive to teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. And my approach will be to answer a simple question. What does Scripture have to teach us about the use of the bow? What can Scriptures teach us about the use of the bow? And the first lesson, which comes from the portion we've read, David's directive regarding the bow, I think it's a plain and obvious lesson, and it goes like this. The lesson of strategic planning. The lesson of strategic planning. Our text reveals to us, I believe, one of the reasons why David was a leader. Simply put, David was a strategic planner. He analyzed what had happened at Mount Gilboa and why the Israelites had been defeated. Now, there's a sense, of course, in which the defeat of the Israelites was inevitable. It had been foretold by Samuel when Samuel had appeared to Saul at the very time Saul was seeking help from a witch. So we read Samuel's words to Saul in 1 Samuel 28 and verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Now all the military prowess and strategic planning in the world would not have availed to nullify that word from the Lord. And yet our text indicates to us that David, nevertheless, had analyzed the battle and had discerned from a military perspective what had happened and what adjustment needed to be made, and so he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. And doesn't David's example teach us not to become fatalists or hyper-Calvinists when it comes to our lives? You're aware, I'm sure, that one of the arguments that's oftentimes brought against the doctrine of God's sovereignty and God's decree is that if God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, then what need is there for the Christian to plan or for the Christian to pray or for the Christian to witness, etc., etc.? Had Saul foreseen this deficiency in the armies of Israel... Could he have compensated for it with better military training and hence have avoided his fate? Well, obviously not. Indeed, in Judah's later years, the certainty of God's word is made a point of emphasis through the prophet Jeremiah when he proclaims the Lord's word in Jeremiah 37, verses 8 and 9, Thus saith the Lord, Deceive not yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans shall surely depart from us, for they shall not depart. For though ye had smitten the whole army of the Chaldeans that fight against you, and there remained but wounded men among them, yet should they rise up every man in his tent and burn this city with fire. Oh, what had the Lord proclaimed through Jeremiah very simply, he proclaimed that the Lord's purposes ultimately come to pass. And in affirming such a truth, all we're really doing is ascribing ultimacy to God rather than to man. Those that think God's purposes can be thwarted, they do the very opposite. They ascribe ultimacy to man rather than to God. The carnal reaction to such a truth is the reason that there's no need for Christians to do anything. No need to pray, no need to plan, no need to analyze a situation and make adjustments, because everything is in the hand of God. What will be, will be. So the reasoning goes. David's example teaches us otherwise. You might say the history of Israel teaches us otherwise. I'm reminded, for example, of the Israelites in the days of Joshua. They were the ones who conquered Canaan. They were the ones who succeeded in conquering the Promised Land. And their success was found not through a kind of blind fatalism that makes no plans, but through the careful formulation of their plans through their communion with God. You could say they made their plans, but not independently of God. They made their plans together with God. God often directing them into the strategy they would use. It was the Lord, you see, that told the Israelites in the days of Joshua to march around the city of Jericho once a day for six days and then to blow their trumpets and shout on the seventh day. It might have seemed like a strange and ineffective strategy, but the Lord gave them the victory that day. But then in the very next chapter, we see them plotting their strategy against the much smaller city of Ai, and in that case, it was their planning apart from the Lord that caused them to fail at Ai. And it was their failure to seek the Lord's counsel that enabled the Gibeonites to deceive them and to enter into a binding alliance with them. When you come to chapter 5 in Second Samuel, you see how David inquires of the Lord in the matter of going against the Philistines. And you see how the Lord directs David to go against them, and how the Lord directs David to adjust his strategy for the second invasion of the Philistines. And so the lesson that God's sovereignty teaches us is not to forego planning altogether, but to make sure your planning is done spiritually as well as practically. Now let me come back to David's directive about the use of the bow for the Israelites' warfare, and let's consider that directive in the light of the Christian spiritual warfare. David bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. What can we learn from David's directive that pertains to our warfare? Can we not draw the lesson from this directive That when it comes to our own spiritual warfare, we should plan strategically. I cited earlier 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4 for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What are the weapons of our warfare? Are they not prayer and the Word of God? And can't we draw an analogy between our weapons and David's directive about the use of the bow that we need to make definitive strategic plans regarding the use of our spiritual weapons? And we need to develop the necessary skill in the use of our weapons? Think with me for a moment about strategic planning when it comes to the practice of prayer. You need to have a plan. You need to make a plan. I remember this is some time ago now when I had occasion to visit my grandkids, much younger age. Um, Grandma must not have been available because I am always, and understandably so, the last resort when it comes to um, staying with the kids. But this was one of those occasions, like I say, quite some time ago. And I was happy to discover on that occasion that they were in the process at that time of creating prayer books to guide them in their praying. And these were simply notebooks with the word prayer on the front of them. On this particular day, they had colored pictures of an American flag and had pasted them in their prayer books, it was a reminder to them to pray for their country. And other things on other pages would serve to guide them in their praying. Well, oh, I have no doubt that homeschool moms have many ways to formulate such strategies. The point is, it's a strategic plan, and we need strategic plans when it comes to our spiritual warfare. You need a strategic plan when it comes to Bible reading and Bible memorization. I think we'd all do well to formulate a strategic plan when it comes to outreach, track distribution, or talking to others about Christ. I have known of those, and I come under conviction every time I think of it, ministerial colleagues that strategically plan to talk to at least one person each day about the Lord. Well, that's an excellent plan to formulate, or to go beyond. Could I suggest that a part of your strategic planning can be to take in the midweek prayer meeting, take it as a matter of strategy, Aren't these days in which the people of God should be coming together to pray? Shouldn't the wickedness of our day compel us to this kind of strategy? <clears throat> Let me draw you, your attention to another lesson about the use of the bow. And in this one, we look beyond David. This is the lesson of drawing our bows at a venture. You remember the story of King Ahab, one of the most wicked kings of Israel, perhaps of all time? We read statements about him that say his wickedness was greater than all his predecessors. He suffered a similar fate to that of King Saul on Mount Gilboa when he went to war against Syria. He actually thought that his planning could thwart the word of the Lord for his inevitable defeat, which had been plainly declared by one of the Lord's prophets. And so it appears that he made a strategic adjustment to his plan. He disguised himself when he went into battle so that he wouldn't be recognized as being the king of Israel. He let his ally, King Jehoshaphat, wear his royal apparel— which nearly led to Jehoshaphat's demise. But Ahab himself appeared as an ordinary soldier. And in that context, we read in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 34, And a certain man drew a bow at a venture, and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. Wherefore he said unto the driver of his chariot, Turn thine hand and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. You know the story. King Ahab died later that day. How did that come about? Just one of the enemy soldiers just drawing uh, a shot on his bow and letting it fly. And it hit King Ahab right in a place that mortally wounded him. In 2 Kings 13 we have the account of Elisha on his deathbed. Joash, the king of Israel, came to visit him and wept over him. And so Elisha had him perform a symbolic gesture by opening the window and taking a bow and shooting an arrow out the window. So we read 2 Kings 13, verse 17. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for thou shalt smite the Syrians and Aphek till thou have consumed them. Now in both instances, the unnamed Syrian soldier in 1 Kings 22 and the king of Israel in 2 Kings 13, we find examples of men shooting a bow at a venture. Or in other words, no particular target, no particular aim. They just shot their arrows in a general direction. And I think we can draw a lesson from them when it comes to our spiritual use of the bow. We should shoot the arrow of the Lord's deliverance at a venture, which is tantamount to saying We should give out the gospel, for that's our arrow of the Lord's deliverance. We should give it out at a venture. No particular target in view. We may simply speak to the person who is pumping gas at the gas station next to us when we're pumping gas into our car. Or you leave a gospel track on the table in the restaurant along with your tip or you give a track to the person behind the checkout counter. Shooting a bow at a venture, you could call it. And the point here is that you don't know what you might hit. When that Syrian soldier drew his bow and fired off a shot, he had no idea that his arrow would hit the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. I know I've shared with you, though I haven't done it recently, the testimony of a very good friend of mine, Tim Williams. Some of you will remember Tim, a former pastor in Woodstock, Illinois. Tim Williams, in his younger days, he lived in Alaska. He was studying, actually, to become a Jesuit priest. And he was under such a heavy load of guilt that he made the decision to take his own life He was going to commit suicide. He was on his way to a river in Alaska where he intended to throw himself in with the aim of killing himself when he found a gospel track in the snow. I don't know how that track track got there. It probably wasn't deliberately placed there. It may have been accidentally dropped or it may have been read and then discarded. It certainly became an arrow shot at a venture which found its way into Tim's heart and he found his way to Christ. And I believe even to this day, he shoots arrows at a venture by giving out gospel tracts everywhere. He knows what the impact can be, he knows what an arrow might hit. This is a good use of the bow to accompany our strategic use of it. Give out the gospel. Or if I could change the figure, bountifully sow the good seed of God's word. You don't know where that seed may land. You don't know what your arrow may hit. You do know this. You know the Lord promises that his word will not return to him void, but that it will accomplish that which he intends. Let me draw one more lesson from Second Kings 13. We've seen the lesson of strategic planning. We've seen the lesson of shooting a bow at a venture. Let me suggest to you finally and briefly the lesson of unabated zeal. Unabated zeal. After Elisha instructed King Joash to shoot the arrow of the Lord's deliverance out of the window facing east, he had further instructions for the king. This is in 2 Kings 13 and verse 18, and he said, take the arrows, and he took them, and he said unto the king of Israel, smite the ground, and he smote thrice and stayed, He hit the ground three times, and then he stopped. And the man of God was wroth with him, and said, Thou shouldst have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hast consumed it, whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. I remember many years ago, one of my Bible professors at Bob Jones remarking on this passage, He said, imagine if that king had been King Jehu. You know King Jehu? Any of you remember anything about King Jehu? He was an earlier king in Israel who was recognized for his fervency in everything that he did. He could even be recognized from a distance by the way he would furiously drive his chariot. Imagine Jehu being given the instructions to take those arrows and smite, this professor said to us. And then he suggested, given Jehu's zeal, he probably would have dug a trench three feet deep with those arrows. The lesson that's conveyed to us by King Joash's use of the arrows, however, is that we should never let our zeal for the Lord languish we haven't learned the use of the bow if we let our zeal languish and don't we have to confess that this is all too often our tendency you speak a word for christ oh that's a good thing well done thou good and faithful servant we say to ourselves you need not worry about doing that again for a while I read a couple extra chapters of the Bible today. I'm ahead of my schedule, so I need not worry about it again for a couple of days or maybe a week or whatever. And we let our zeal languish. We should never let our zeal languish. There's an interesting text found in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12 that reads like this. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, preached a series of sermons on that text entitled Heaven Taken by Storm, showing the holy violence a Christian is to put forth in the pursuit after glory. The thrust of this little book is to show how the Christian should apply greater fervor to all his spiritual endeavors. Each chapter contains an area of the Christian's life where greater fervor or violence needs to be applied. So there's a chapter on reading and hearing the word with violence. There's a chapter on applying violence to our battle against sin. Applying violence to our prayer lives, applying violence to sanctifying the Lord's day, etc, etc. Would well, you get the point? We cut the blessing of God short, and we set ourselves up for an eventual defeat by allowing our zeal to languish. He bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow by his example, David teaches us the value of strategic planning in our warfare. And the use of the bow in scriptures teaches us to shoot our arrows, the arrow of God's deliverance. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our arrow of deliverance. Aren't you glad that arrow of deliverance found its way to your heart? How did that happen? How did it find its way to your heart? Chances are that arrow of gospel deliverance hit your heart because your heart was targeted by someone who shot that arrow. May have been your parents. May have been your pastor. Could have been a Sunday school teacher. Or it may have been an arrow that was simply shot at a venture and found its way to your heart. Shouldn't we then be shooting the arrows of God's deliverance? And shouldn't we be zealous in shooting those arrows and in your praying and in your battle against sin and the world and the devil? Oh, may Christ himself, who is our deliverance, so smite our hearts with his love and grace that we make good use of the weapons at our disposal for the advancement of his glory. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we pray that thou will help us to be strategic in our planning, recognizing as we do that thou art sovereign. May we make our plans with thee and not independently of thee, And may we indeed be bountifully sowing the good seed of thy word, for, Lord, we don't know what can be accomplished. May we draw a bow at a venture and shoot out the arrow of God's deliverance through the gospel. And, O Lord, we pray that our zeal would not languish, but that it may indeed be inspired. So hear our prayers, O Lord, hear and answer and make us mighty for Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.